that way I don't feel guilty for making people sit down and stop talking. So feel free to talk as much as you want after the service. All right, so thankful to be with you uh, this morning to have a chance to open up the Word of God uh, with you this morning. Uh, today we're doing the second message in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And this is more of a, I, I call it application, but really the implications of the text, part of which we talked about last week. Um, but I will flesh that out a little bit more as we look at, at uh, what Jesus is saying when he says, I have not come to abolish, but fulfill. Try to have a better understanding of that and how it applies to us, us in the church age, those who follow Jesus Christ. So the question that most people have is, do the Ten Commandments apply to us? Does the Old Testament really, um, is it really in force in my life? I remember last week I uh, I conveyed to you my experience uh, with a gentleman running at me um, last week saying I was profaning the Sabbath as I played flag football with little kids on a Saturday. Um, and, and is he right? Is he true in what he's saying? He was certainly sincere in what he was saying. I kind of admired the fact that he was bold enough to run at me and, and yell that. So the Sabbath, and that will be a part of our conversation as well. So what I want to do is, is really this message, it may, you may only get half of it this morning. The first part will be, is the Old Testament, does the Old Testament um, have force in our life as a rule for life now? All the commandments that are there in the Old Testament. What are we to do with the Old Testament? And then the second half, kind of as a case study, is okay, so what do we say about the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath is a part of that. So the point today, as we try to understand this, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the Mosaic Law as a rule for our life. Rather, we are under the law of Christ or the law of love. Let's pray and ask God to give us understanding this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the truth of your word that is the foundation for our lives. It is the rock upon which we build our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit be working in us. We ask that you would open our eyes, help us to behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, please transform us to be people who love you better and who love others better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the text, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, began with a commanding clarification. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is going to be teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. Okay, he's clarifying now. I'm not saying that the law is, is, is not in effect now, okay? I'm not taking anything away from it. He's clarifying. But then he talks about careful command-keeping. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly would be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so this careful command keeping was still in effect with respect to the law because Jesus Christ had not gone to the cross yet. Okay, he had not completely fulfilled all that the law and the prophets had said about him by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. They gave you some examples of how Jesus encourage those listening to him to go offer the right sacrifices in keeping with the law of Moses. But then we have a cautious call. 
Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and their overt righteousness. The fact that they were very ostentatious. They put on a good show. This is very alarming for us, very sobering. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He sets the bar very high. Because the Pharisees were the most perceived to be the most righteous people in the land. Everybody looked up to them as, as the spiritual leaders and those to be imitated, to be emulated. You're telling me I have to be more righteous than them if I'm going to enter the kingdom? I remember we learned that our righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, through faith in his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So again, the point this morning Look at this. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the Mosaic law as the rule of our life. Rather, we are under the law of love or the law of Christ. So I'm going to have an interlocutor here. That's somebody that you carry on a conversation with. That's a fancy word, interlocutor. So we have Sean the Sabbatarian. There are many groups that believe that Saturday is, uh, um, should be observed by Christians as the Sabbath. That that's the day that Christians should come together and worship the God, not the worship God, not the first day of the week, but the seventh day of the week. We have some people in our group that came out of the Seventh Day Adventist group. Uh, many people are familiar with the Seventh Day Adventists, very big on the Sabbath. Okay, and so this person here, I'm going to have, is going to be asking questions for us to lead us through our understanding of uh, how we relate to the law. Does the Old Testament still have force in our lives? Is it the rule for our life? So, Sean the Sabbatarian says, Surely all of God's word is inspired and useful, and you're saying that we are no longer under the law? Can that possibly be? How can that be? Remember, we saw the law last week, the purpose of the law, that it was, not moving the slide for it, there we go, okay, that the law reflects the character of God. God gave the law, and it's, it, it reveals his character to us. It was given as part of the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant. When God made a covenant with his chosen people that he brought out of Egypt, he gave them rules for living that would guide them, given to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. It was to guide the nation of Israel. Never meant to save. Never meant to save. In fact, it, more than anything, it demonstrates our need for Jesus Christ. And so the question is, is, are we still under the law? And the answer is no. And I, I did talk about this some last week, but I'm going I'm to flesh that a little bit more. Are we still under the law? Does the Old Testament still guide the way we're supposed to live our lives now? Is it in force in our lives? I read, I write, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ represent all that the law and prophets anticipated. He is the purpose for which the law was given, and the end of the law is the rule of life for God's people. He is the purpose for which it is given, and he is the end of the law is the rule of life for God's people. Romans 10.4 speaks about this. Christ is the culmination. Some versions say he is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That word... Uh, Culmination, end of the law, its, it's, it's final purpose has been met. And so Jesus, we saw this last week, he is all that the law and the prophets anticipated. 
and as such, he is the end of the law, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking about the amazing mystery of, of Jews and Gentiles coming into the body of Christ, one people, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Let me read that again. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, all that the law entailed was set aside by Christ in his death on the cross. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And so I write very simply, Jesus' work on the cross set aside the law. That is what the text says. It sets aside the law. Can't divide the law up. We'll see that in just a minute. Romans chapter 7 is insightful to us because he uses this imagery of marriage. If two people get married, the marriage is intact until one of the, one of the people in the marriage dies. It's the only thing, according to God, that's supposed to separate two people is death. I tell people I'm doing premarital counseling. You guys are together until one of you dies, until death do you part. And so Jesus is talking about our relationship to the law, okay? And that through Christ's death on the cross, okay, we have died to the law ourselves through faith. And so it no longer has force in our lives. Romans chapter 7, verse 1, do you know, brothers and sisters, he's talking to Jews, and says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. You guys who know very well the Mosaic law. Now, in the church at Rome, it was a mixed church. Okay, it was a mixed church, but at this point, Paul is transitioning. Part of his argument is to say, here is how God is working in the Jews, and here's how you relate to the law. You know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, right? One of the purposes of the law was to show us how sinful we are. And whenever there's a rule that says don't do it, what, we kind of inside, because of our sin nature, we kind of want to do it, right? There's this passion to do it. The simple passions caused, aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit to death. But now by dying to what bound us, listen, we have been released from the law. Now it is true that in Romans, Paul uses the law to mean different things, the law of sin, the law of death. But here very clearly, He's talking about the law of Moses as we begin in, in verse 1. I'm writing to you people who, who understand the law. He says, by dying, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under the law, Paul tells us in Galatians, and not in the old way of the written code. Well, what's the written code? It's the law of Moses. It's the Mosaic law. So through faith, you die to the law's command and its penalties. I think Scripture is very clear that through faith in Jesus Christ, he fulfilled all 
that the law anticipated, all that the law demanded as far as his righteous actions. And when he died on the cross, his death, in fact, was a complete fulfillment of the law. And, on the flip side, his blood was the ratification of the new covenant. There's a new covenant that wonder, not the old covenant. We'll see that in Hebrews. One commentator says this, Christ brings to an end the era of the law's jurisdiction, while at the same time recognizing that Christ is the goal of the law insofar as he is the one to whom it testifies. So what's the point here? Keep saying it because I want you to remember it. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ represent all that the law and prophets anticipated. He is the purpose for which the law was given, and the end of the law is a rule of life for God's people. In saying that, though, I want to remind you that all Scripture is God-breathed, okay? As Paul wrote to Timothy, trying to encourage him in his faith, he, he was like, say, stick to the Word of God. I know there's false teachers. Remember what you have been taught. Remember the words of God that made you wise to salvation. What words were those? Those were the words of Genesis to Malachi. So we're no longer under the regulations and the rules of the Old Testament as a means of relating to God, but the principles contained in the Old Testament, the principles contained in Genesis to Malachi, are still very useful for us. They're very helpful for us to understand how to know God, how to relate to God, how to love others. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's not as if we just say, okay, we're under the New Covenant, the New Testament. New Testament means covenant, okay? The New Testament. So it it doesn't mean that we just kind of chuck out Genesis to Malachi and say, that's no good for me. God has a lot to teach us through the law and the prophets. Well, Sean says this, Jesus clearly says that not the the smallest part of the law will disappear. Jot, tittle, none of it's going to disappear. How do you explain that? Well, this is from last week, because remember in Matthew 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will, will by any means disappear from the law, what? Until everything is accomplished. I take this very clearly to mean that it was accomplished when Jesus was hanging on the cross. It's interesting, when you look at this in John's Gospel, he fulfills one more prophecy, right? The fact that he would drink vinegar mixed with gall, and it says, so that all, all Scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, he received that, that sponge, or said he didn't want it. And then he says, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. I have fulfilled all that Genesis to Malachi have spoken of me. It is finished. And so that is until everything is accomplished. It was accomplished at that moment. Until everything is accomplished was realized through Jesus' life, sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. That's how I respond to that. What about the Ten Commandments, though, he says. Sean's like, okay, you're saying that about Genesis to Malachi, but come on, you know, the Ten Commandments, they're the biggies, right? And they represent the character of God, so so they have to be enforced in our lives. And people who argue about this, they say that the law was fulfilled. When Jesus says it is finished on the cross, the law was fulfilled in its ceremonial in its civil aspects, but not its moral component. Right? So people like to divide the law and the prophets up into three different sections. Paul never does that. 
Jesus never does that. Scripture never says these are the three different sections. We recognize that as we look at the way it's given to us. And, and quite frankly, there is overlap between them. Right? When you look at the civil aspects of the law, the civil aspects of the law are firmly undergirded by the moral component of the law. Right? And, and you don't need the sacrifices there if there's no moral, so moral component because they're all intertwined. And Scripture recognizes the law as a whole. It's an indivisible whole. The Bible views the law as a unified whole which cannot be divided. Familiar passage in James chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Whoever says you shall not commit murder, I'm sorry, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. In Galatians, as Paul is interacting with the Judaizers, these people who are trying to, to make people who are following Christ submit to circumcision, Paul says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under its curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do what? Everything that is written in the book of the law. He's going to go on to say, And again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. It's a unified whole that cannot be divided into parts. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So are we still under the Mosaic law? I'm going to say it again. The life and finished work of Jesus Christ represent all the law and the prophecy anticipated. He is the purpose for which the law was given. And the end of the law is the rule of life for God's people. So, Sean says, so we're lawless. Right? We can do whatever we want. Grace abounds, right? I, can, I have liberty in Christ. As long as I don't hurt anybody, as long as I'm trying to love everybody, then I can do whatever I want. Are we now lawless? Well, the answer is no. Because all of the Ten Commandments are either in principle or in fact in word repeated in the New Testament, beginning with Jesus. All of them except Sabbath keeping. Not once. The silence is deafening. Right, Jesus mentions 13 moral sins. So we're going for, it's a negative, right? It's a, these commands, they're list, I'm listing them as sins. Jesus mentions 13 moral sins that arise from the sinful heart. And Sabbath breaking is not one of them. If keeping the Sabbath were that important, I believe Jesus would have said in his sin list, and you don't keep the Sabbath because all you want to do is binge on Netflix and then you want to go out and play ball in the yard. Paul says no. 20 sins in Romans 1, 10 sins in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 sins in Galatians, 18 sins in 2 Timothy. I'm trying to keep it, they make it negative, right? But there's a command that's not being obeyed. It's listed as a negative. There is a law that's not being obeyed. It's okay, and so it's a sin. But nowhere does Paul say anything about not keeping the Sabbath or about ordering the church to come together on the seventh day of the week or Saturday. John says no, or Jesus to John in Revelation. Thirteen sins are mentioned that bar one's entrance into the holy city, the New Jerusalem, Sabbath breaking is not one of them. So are we now lawless? 
Answer is no, emphatically no. No, because we're under the law of Christ. What is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's way too loose, Jay. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But Paul clearly tells us this in Romans chapter 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except to continue, the continuing debt to love one another. Forever loves has what? Fulfilled the intent or the purpose of the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we make a big deal about love here. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is what? The fulfillment of the law. So, Sabbatarian Sam, or Sam, Sean, <laughs> me speaketh too much. <laughs> Sabbatarian Sean says this, well, the Sabbath, Sabbath's different, though, right? It's a universal command. Right? I, I get you may say that about the other nine, but the Sabbath is different because it was established at creation. And I would just remind you that as we look at Genesis through Malachi, beginning at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when we read the Old Testament, we're given this privilege of knowing Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, through the writings of the New Testament, through the Holy Spirit, allowing us to understand this, we're, we're able to look at the Old Testament and see more clearly what's being said through the writings of the Old Testament. We have a, an advantage there. And so as we look at passages in the Old Testament, we need to see them through Jesus. The law and the prophets found their fulfillment and through, in and through Jesus Christ, and I state, our Sabbath. It's a pretty heavy statement there. That Jesus Christ, in fact, is our Sabbath. Right, so Sean the Sabbatarian says, Sabbath keeping is different because at creation God mentions the Sabbath. Right, we're familiar with this in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he, what, he rested from all his work. Was he tired? Did God have to take a break because six days is exhausting for him? No. It's infinite power. <laughs> this concept of resting is just stopping your work. And you you've done this before, right? You have this big job that's ahead of you. You work, you work, you work, you get it done. And you step back and you look at it and you go, oh, man. It's good. And you rejoice in it. God rejoiced in all that he had created. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So here we have Genesis mentions this concept of Sabbath, this concept of resting from work, of ceasing from work. God picks this up in Exodus as he gives the law, the Mosaic law, to his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's more clear. This is my covenant with you. Okay? You're my covenant people. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant, this old covenant. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But here it is, the Ten Commandments. One of them, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. One of you shall do 
not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male nor your female servant, nor animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so as we consider God's work throughout the ages, his progressive revelation, how he revealed himself to his people, beginning in Genesis, working all the way through the Old Testament, we look at the concept of the Sabbath, right? So, so God states that he's, he created everything in six days, he steps back on the seventh day, he rests, and he looks at it and says, oh, this is awesome, it's beautiful. All right. For over 2,400 years, not a mention of the Sabbath is made, right? So if you look at Genesis, there's a lot of time that's covered, all right? And this is like a very young earth concept of time here. I mean, some of you may have a, an older earth view. This is a very young earth view. But even then, so, so God, he creates, he makes this statement in Genesis chapter 2, nowhere through, uh, you start with, start with Adam, you can go to, to Seth, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. Anywhere in there, was there a mention of Sabbath or Sabbath keeping? Not one place. Right, and I had that passage there that it was not our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant. He didn't make a covenant with the patriarchs about that the covenant didn't include keeping of the Sabbath. It was not with their ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, the Israelites, with all of us who are alive here today. So I'm reiterating this. Not one word is mentioned about the Sabbath from the moment of creation forward in history as God revealed himself progressively. And those who claim that keeping of the Sabbath is a universal thing, God never, ever, ever accuses the nations around Israel of not keeping the Sabbath. When he starts listing out these are the sins of the different nations around Israel, he never once says, you guys didn't keep the Sabbath. Sabbath The Sabbath was meant as a covenant sign between God and Israel. Very specific purpose for keeping the Sabbath. A covenant sign between God and a particular people the Israelites, his chosen people that he called out of Egypt, right? Exodus chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelite, you must observe my Sabbath. Whose Sabbaths are they? They're God's Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you. This is a sign. This is a covenant sign for generations to come. Now, some people see the word generation, the phrase generations to come and see, see that means ad infinitum into the future. He's speaking to the people. For the generations that will come after you, this is the same sign. That's all he's saying there. He's not saying until the end of time. So, you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Now, for us, there is a new sign under the new covenant, the blood of Christ. Right? Hebrews talks about this. I'm not going to go re-preach all of Sam's sermons, which are so good. Go back and listen to them. But by calling this covenant new the New Testament, the new covenant under Christ, he has made the first one, which was the first one, the old covenant under Moses, the first one is obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. 
Well, Sean, the Sabbatarian says, so what? Well, then the Sabbath has no meaning for me? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, because the law and the prophets found their fulfillment in and through Jesus, our Sabbath. So we have to look to Jesus. If you want to understand what meaning the Sabbath might have for us, it's looking to Jesus. The Mosaic Sabbath was a shadow of the substance of the true Sabbath, Jesus Christ. Right? So in the Old Testament, we have these shadows, these different things that God does, and they point towards Christ. We, we, we see God working in redemption. We, they can't really see it clearly. These shadows point to what is causing the shadow. Jesus. He is the substance of it. And that's Paul's point in Colossians. Paul is, is, is trying to protect the people in the church from uh, legalism, from a workspace salvation. He says, look, I don't want anyone to judge you by what you eat or drink, Mosaic Law, or with regard to a religious festival, Mosaic Law, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Why? Because these are a shadow of the things that were to come. They were a shadow of the substance, however, the reality. The substance, however, is found in Jesus Christ. Every Sabbath that was ever celebrated was a shadow pointing to Jesus Christ, our Sabbath, Sabbath, the one in whom we find rest. Jesus, our Sabbath, did the work necessary to release us from the slavery to sin. I'm sorry, let me read that again. Jesus, our Sabbath, did the work necessary to release us from slavery to sin, was completed by Jesus, that's a typo, so that through faith we can rest in him. Jesus did the work to release us from slavery. It was completed by Jesus, and it gives us rest so that we can rest in him. So, as we consider the shadow, right? I have the word shadow up here. Here's the shadow. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord your God, on it you shall do no work. So as we look at this concept of the Sabbath, he says you shall rest from your labors. Right? Think of the context here. These Israelites had been, they had been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. You're working day in, day out, sunrise to sunset. You have no rest. But I redeemed you out of Israel to give you rest. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it, do no work. Could you imagine how that sounded in the ears of people who had been slaves for 430 years? Neither your son, nor your daughter, nor your male, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do rest. So we see here that God's command for a Sabbath represents rest from labor. It also represents release from bondage. Because he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Remember, you were enslaved. I released you from that. I redeemed you from that. I set you free from that. You can actually have rest. And so we see this giving of the command for the Sabbath. It's a shadow. But then we see the substance is found in Jesus Christ, 
Jesus, our Sabbath, did the work necessary to release us from slavery to sin, was completed by Jesus so that through faith we can rest in him. If you can make something out of sentence, go ahead and do it for me because actually it's a typo. But Jesus is our Sabbath. He releases us from slavery to sin. He gives us, gives us rest from our works. We see in John chapter 19, John after chapter 19, I, already, I referenced this earlier, this concept of fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament, John 19, later knowing that everything had been finished. Everything had been finished. What had been finished? The law and the prophets. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, this last prophecy here says, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and they lifted it up to Jesus' lips. That's the fulfillment of, of prophecy, of, of scripture. When Jesus had received, received the drink, he said, what? It is finished. So it's the fulfillment. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So when Jesus says, it is finished, okay, that is, that is the substance, that is the rest and release that is promised to us in the Sabbath. Now Jesus, as he talks about the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is a big deal in the ministry of Jesus because the Pharisees, those people, our righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees, the spiritual elites, they had taken the Sabbath and made it so cumbersome. They had made it such a burden on God's people that they were weighed down by all the regulations of the Sabbath. They were like, I can, there's no way possible that I can live up to the standard that the Pharisees had. There's no way that I can do it. And so Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and he says this about them. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus is talking to a people that are weighed down by a works-based religion enforced upon them by the traditions of the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is addressing the issue of the Sabbath and who he is in relation to temple worship. And he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than David. And in fact, I am here to give you rest. What I'm teaching you is going to give you rest from the yoke of the Pharisees. And so that's why Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says, I will give you the rest that was promised to you in every single Sabbath that was supposed to be observed. I will give that to you. The Pharisees certainly aren't doing that. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. That yoke for the beast of earth, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And Jesus says, this is love for God, keep his commands. His commands aren't burdensome. So Jesus is the substance of the shadow of every single Sabbath that was observed. God says, I want you to take that seventh day, that Saturday, I want you to rest from your labors. I want you to rest. I want you to remember, I freed you from slavery 
to, from slavery in Egypt. And so in John chapter 8, we read more about the substance, right? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus came to free his people. He ultimately freed his people from slavery to sin. We also see the substance of Jesus as our rest in the book of Hebrews. There then remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We have this already not yet. What the author of Hebrews is saying here, he says, look, you have to keep the faith. You have to keep your faith in God. You have to keep your faith in Christ. Don't let go of that faith. You have to hold fast to that faith. You have to continue in that faith. And if you continue in that faith and don't waver from that faith, then there is a rest that's promised to you in the future as well. So there's this rest that's given to us the moment of salvation, but there's this rest that's out there for us in the future. And that rest that's out there for the future is this kingdom rest that Jesus is giving the people glimpses us as he heals people, as he feeds people. He's given this rest, this picture of this kingdom rest. That ultimate eternal Sabbath rest. There remains in a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will perish following the other's example of disobedience. Every single Sabbath that was observed from the time it was initiated when Moses gave it to the people of God for 1,500 plus years pointed to Jesus Christ, our Sabbath, and the release and the rest that he would give us. He is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is our Sabbath. In him we find rest. In him we find release. The shadow of the law and the prophets found their substance in and through Jesus Christ, who is our Sabbath. So why is it that we don't are called by God to observe a Sabbath every week? Because Jesus is that Sabbath. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. The Sabbath, however, was a pointer, a sign that pointed away from itself to the one who can give eternal rest. And those who experience that rest become members of the new covenant, the body of Christ, the church. The ultimate question is not whether we keep the Sabbath, this is so good, but whether the Sabbath keeps us. Because Jesus is the Sabbath, right? Those who are in Christ are kept by him and have already entered into his Sabbath rest. So a few points to ponder here as we close. And we're going to go back to Sean, the Sabbatarian here. He says, one last question. Well, so, so why is it that you worship on the first day of the week? I think that's, that's a good question. Why do we worship on the first day of the week and not on Saturday? Well, what day did Christ rise from the dead? It was the first day of the week. Not stated explicitly in the Bible, but it's very clear if you look at how Pentecost is celebrated, that Pentecost was on the first day of the week. It was on a Sunday that we call the first day of the week. But more importantly, we see in Scripture places where the first day of the week became the day where they gathered, right? In Acts chapter 20, this is in the evening, 
On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. I put that last part in there so you guys can feel good about the fact that I don't keep you all night. But this is interesting, and I want to bring up another point that I don't have a slide here for. When, 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 when Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets, when he, was, uh, you know, when he died on the cross, he was buried and he rose from the dead, right? he ushers in a whole new way of relating to God. And, and he is going to make of the entire earth, he's going to make all one people. Right? So you have this message of the gospel that I just explained is going to be taken to all the nations of the earth. Right? The people who say that we're still under the Mosaic law in some form are saying you need to take the Mosaic law to all the people of the earth. And God's saying no. One people under one new law, the law of Christ. We're not going to bring everybody back under that yoke. But back to the point on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday, right? John, when he was prophesying, says on the Lord's day. This is the only place in the scriptures to say the Lord's day. On the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. And he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. So we worship on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. We worship on Sunday, not the Sabbath, because it was the day that Christ was raised from the dead. Well, he says, I've heard people say this Sunday has been placed Saturday as the Sabbath in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead. This is nowhere found in Scripture. Right? And the people who hold this position are typically those who say, okay, the law is divided up in three different parts. You have the civil, the ceremonial, and the, the moral. And, and so we, we uphold that. The Sabbath is in there. And so we have to do something with the Sabbath. So what we do is we collapse Saturday into Sunday, and we make Sunday the Sabbath. So the Presbyterians would do this. And it's just not scriptural. There's no scriptural merit for this. He goes on to say, I'm just not sure my conscience will allow me to work on Saturdays. Right, and that, that passage I read to you from Acts chapter 20, people have been working all day. They had to work all day and then come together and worship. You know, if they were supposed to observe the Sabbath, then most of them should have been killed, right? Because there are penalties that come with working on the Sabbath. Some people, I, I've dealt with people in Hamtramck. I, I can't work on Saturdays because my conscience won't let me do it because it's... I believe it's the Sabbath, and God says this and that about the Sabbath. Well, Paul says this, very helpful. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Everybody needs to be fully convinced in their own mind. If you want to worship on Saturdays, fine. There are many churches that gather on Saturday afternoons, Saturday evenings, some with good motives, some with not so good motives, okay? Some so they can make sure they get to their kids' little league game the next day. But nonetheless... Some, some worship on Saturdays, that's fine. I think we have that freedom in Christ. I think the pattern is that we gather on the first day of the week. But everybody needs to, to have a clear conscience. Everybody has to be fully convinced in their own mind. And so if you hold one view on the Sabbath and somebody else holds another view, you need to let them work that out. You need to pray for them. Everybody has to be fully convinced in their own mind. Lastly, John's about done. I've heard some of you guys pick one day of the week, and you call it your Sabbath, and you don't do any work, right? So that's the thing now is 
know, I need, I need a Sabbath. I need a Sabbath day. I need a day where I can just not do anything and kind of just you know, sit and read my Bible. That's good. Sit and pray. That's good. You know, just kind of hang out with family. That's good. You know, just kind of enjoy everything that God's created. That's good. All those things are good. And I think that's fine. I just don't, I wouldn't call it my Sabbath. Because we're in no way, by God, called to observe a Sabbath. People say, well, there's a creation rhythm, right? God created everything six, everything six days, and one day he rested. So there's this eternal, eternal principle of, of a, a, a one day of rest rhythm. That's fine. If that's, you have the freedom to do that. You absolutely have the freedom to do that. The pro, here's the problem with it. That you begin to hyper-spiritualize the fact that you take a Sabbath day and then you become the more spiritual person because you are doing these things. You're taking one day and you are doing all these things and you're not. And if you just did these things, then you would be like me. Now, I'm not against rest. I think rest is good. Rest is fine. We need rest. If you choose to take one day of the week and do something different, that's great. That's your freedom in Christ. I would say in John chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear, I'm always working and my Father is always working. Always working, okay? So there is a place for rest, though, okay? And this, I'm just putting this out here because this is something that you're going to hear, right? That, you know, here's your problem. You're working too hard. If you just took a break and rested, then you wouldn't have all these problems, right? That may or may not be the case, okay? In any event... I wouldn't call it the Sabbath. I was talking to Kristen about this. I, like, I think we ought to have a kingdom feast day, right? Because the Sabbath ultimately is pointing towards the Sabbath rest in Christ, which will, which will happen in the kingdom, right? What happens in the kingdom? You're with God's people. There's food there. There's joy there, right? You're, you're worshiping. I think it'd be great to have a kingdom day or a kingdom feast. Call it that. I think that'd be more scriptural. Today's my kingdom day. I'm going to go for a walk in the woods. I'm going to enjoy God's creation and all that it has. I'm going to sit with my family and just spend some one-on-one time with my family and just enjoy them. We're going to make a big meal together. We're going to read God's word, and we're going to worship together. Amen to that. That'd be great. That'd be a good idea. But if you don't do it, you're no less spiritual, okay? You're no less close to God than if you did do it. If Jesus is our Sabbath rest, and in believers, as believers, we're in Christ, then every day should be one of worship and rest. Right? Because we've been released from the slavery of sin. Right? We have our rest in Christ because He did all the work. He did the work that we can't do for salvation. He did that work so we can rest in Him. Every single day, in a sense, is a Sabbath. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing a song together. Um, Man of Sorrows. And the reason I picked this song was because it talks, it's the gospel, okay? But he talks about being freed. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, right? We're free in Christ. Freed from sin. Free to observe Sabbath the way we want to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've